Throughout the years, the idea of sustainability has changed and the metrics by which we measure how sustainable we are have shifted. So where are we on the sustainability timeline? And what should we be focusing on to become more sustainable in the businesses and lives we lead? To answer those questions is science journalist Wade Rausch and Patrick Flynn, the Vice President of Sustainability at Salesforce. On this episode of IT Visionaries, they discuss the current state of sustainability efforts, as well as the lessons they've learned from the past and how to prepare for and evolve in the future. Enjoy this discussion. This episode of IT Visionaries is part of a special series on sustainability. IT Visionaries is brought to you by the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Take climate action with a pre-built carbon accounting solution and gain insights into your greenhouse gas emissions. Learn more at salesforce.com slash solutions slash sustainability. Welcome to another episode of IT Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, host of IT Visionaries. And today we are joined by two guests at a, a roundtable of sorts, a digital roundtable. Uh, first, Wade, how are you? Doing great, Ian. Thanks for having me on. Indeed. And Patrick, how are you? I'm doing great, all things considered amidst the COVID-19 crisis. I feel very fortunate. I do as well. It is, um, it's a great time to, uh, you know, focus a little bit and, uh, and try to make sense of the madness and, and hopefully bring some helpful uh, thoughts and ideas to, to our listeners. So I feel extremely fortunate to be able to do that. And today we're going to be talking about a bunch of sustainability stuff as part of our sustainability series, but also just a meandering road of, of a few of the really cool things that both of you have worked on in your careers. You know, we're going to talk a little bit about climate and, and the environment um, and how technology is shaping all those things. So let, let's start off first with, uh, wait, how did you get into uh, science and technology? Well, I've been covering science and technology from a journalistic perspective since the mid nineties. And obviously had been a kind of a science geek for much longer than that. I think I probably fell in love with science um, as a, a kid growing up in the 70s and you know watching the space program and then having Carl Sagan become my hero you know through his original series Cosmos. I just grew up a total science geek and, and as soon as I uh, got out of school, I decided to to run with that and and be a journalist had, had fallen in love with journalists as a, a college student. Um, had become a um, campus journalist working on the local newspaper and decided to kind of combine those two loves, journalism and science, when I got out of school. So I've been, ever since 95 or so, have been covering some aspect of um, either straight up research or uh, technology, startups, innovation, venture capital, and that side of how we advance as a species. And Patrick, what about you? It's hard for me to put my finger on it. You know, I grew up and I heard consistently through the middle school, high school years that I would be a great engineer. And I had no idea what anybody was talking about when they, when they said that to me. I was just passionate about math and science. And I ended up studying mechanical engineering as an undergrad and really saw that just more than anything as a way to um, see the world from different perspectives. And then it really sunk in, and especially the environmental angle really got galvanized in my first job out of school doing high-rise building engineering, HVAC engineering, and seeing 
what a huge role and responsibility an engineer had to design for the benefit of society and to see things from a longer term perspective. And that really got me hooked and, and set me on a journey where I had decided at that very time to dedicate my entire career to uh, helping the environment. So tell us a little bit about what you're doing at Salesforce to, to do exactly that. Sure. Uh, so I lead sustainability at Salesforce and Salesforce, I'm sure the audience and you are quite familiar. We're a company driven by, by our values and we think about stakeholders. And to me, I think the stakeholder of the planet, the environment writ large, um, is something me and my team think about all day, every day. And it begins like for most corporate sustainability programs, begins by thinking about what's most relevant to the business that we do as a cloud company. And so because of that, we think about things like data centers, offices, the electricity in particular that supports them. But Salesforce as a leader is driven to do so much more than just think about our own four walls. And so really these days, what my team and I spend most of our time thinking about is what are the big levers for change around us as a company? What are the big parts of the the environmental system around us and how can we have an environmental impact that's far, far bigger than the scale of Salesforce? And we've talked on this show about, you know, the kind of the scope of the problem as part of this sustainability series, how technology is going to play a huge role in sustainability and why that's so important, you know, but looking at the scale of the problem, we clearly know that, you know, just gals and guys on the ground kind of doing the work is is only part of it. We have to really understand from a technological perspective, like what is the scope of the problem? How can we look at this? I, I'm curious, Wade, you know, in your work, you've written about a bunch of different sustainability topics, um, you know, everything from plastic to low carbon to climate change and, and beyond. What do you think the scope of the problem is right now? Well, the word sustainability and the concept of sustainability has, you know, frankly, it's been around since the 60s and 70s. And when people started using the term, I don't think they had a climate change framework in mind because uh, while we knew about the greenhouse effect, it wasn't an acute and obvious problem quite yet. And I think what people were talking about was literally how do we design systems? How do we design economies that won't use up all the Earth's resources? How can we make sure that there are enough current and future resources for all, you know, five, six, seven, eight, ten billion people on the planet? And it was only over time that it became obvious that like the central environmental challenge is climate change. And now I think when we talk about sustainability, people leap right to that question of what we're going to do to adapt to and prepare for and mitigate and eventually reverse um, global warming. So, uh, you know, those are still two separate things to think about, though, I think. Um, you can talk all day about um, renewable energy and how to change the transportation industry or the or the food industry to slow down our carbon emissions. But in the big picture, you still have to think about whether we have an economy that's built to be sustainable for the long term. 
not just in terms of how much carbon we're putting out, but how we distribute goods across the developed world and the developing world. So I think it's still useful to kind of try and keep those two things separate. And uh, <laughs> that means the scope of the problem is pretty big. Um, not only do we have to figure out how to rebuild our infrastructure for a changing climate, but we have to think about how to stop pouring carbon into the atmosphere and how to start pulling it out of the atmosphere. Um, and at the same time, we have to figure out how to address the gigantic uh, inequality and gaps in income and health and food access and education access uh, around the world, um, which is totally part of the sustainability problem. So I don't know. I'm, <laughs> I'm not trying to uh, to load too much into this question, but if you know, the, I can't, kind of the larger your lens, almost the, the bigger the problem looks, and the more despair you might be tempted to feel. On the other hand, every little thing you do can can affect everything else. So from that perspective, you know, it's it's all one big. Everything that we do can help in some small way. Yeah, and and Wade, you know, the the layer I would add even on top of that in terms of complexity is the idea of prioritization. I think one of the hardest things that somebody focused on sustainability has to do is think about limited time, limited resources, and where the, the greatest positive impact um, per unit of resource deployed is. And so, you know, back to your point about climate change, even under the lens of sustainability in the biggest capital S sense of the word, um, when prioritized appropriately, climate change stands out as the most urgent, most complex, most pervasive challenge of them all, and perhaps the biggest and most complex challenge humans have ever faced. And to me, in that complexity and the scale of that challenge is something that captivates me, right? This is, this is the biggest puzzle that humans have ever tried to solve, and it touches absolutely everything we do. So I, I find so much captivation for me personally in trying to understand this huge and dynamic complex problem and figure out the right ways to address it. Yeah, yeah. I would just say we're not going to solve sustainability without um, addressing climate change. But let's just say we did somehow get a handle on climate change, that in itself is not going to fix sustainability. That's, that's all yeah. I was really trying to say, right? Oh, it's yeah, a bigger absolutely. problem. Absolutely right. Well, and I think, you know, there's there's also like this isn't all doom and gloom, although the stakes are extremely severe. But I think, you know, if you look at the human condition compared to where it was, you know, 50 years ago or 100 years ago or 1000 years ago, like the world is a much better place. Humans are in a much better place. This is the best time in the history of humanity to be alive. However, that doesn't mean that all of the steps that, you know, it took to get here didn't come without consequences. And I think that that's part of the, you know, to your point, Patrick, the the puzzle that we need to, we need to solve, right, is like, we did a bunch of things to progress as a society. And now we have the knowledge and capacity and technology and all these different things that can solve some of the other um, issues with this that can create different, you know, whether it's technologies or innovations, um, that can either reverse or maybe not, you know, forever reverse, but to, to make change. And I think that that's part of the, the issue that I think we, we struggle with as a society, which is like, 
it's really nice to have our, you know, to think of something that you want and the next day it shows up in front of your doorstep. But there's tons of other things that go into that. And I, and I think that, you know, this podcast is optimistic uh, for the future of humanity. Um, you know, I would definitely say that I'm extremely optimistic. And I think that when faced with these sort of challenges, we can, we can definitely rise to the occasion. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's not going to be a ton of work. And like, you know, you look at any achievement in humanity and like, yeah, it's a ton of work. Like, it's not going to be easy to do these sort of things. But I think that the thing that we have now, the superpowers that we have now are things like exponential technologies that we just, ne we didn't have that stuff a hundred years ago. And then you look at certain industries and like building a house hasn't really changed in a hundred years. So it's this kind of like dichotomy of how do you, how do you leverage things that we didn't used to have to change the way that business processes are done to, you know, do all those things. But at the same time, you also have to say like, you know, Patrick, like you were saying, the biggest problem that we, we have to solve climate change first, because if we don't do that, then, uh, you know, we're all, we're all doomed anyways. Yeah, you know, and you touched on one thing, which is this really tough balance that I know, Wade, you must um, really have to carry as well, which is um, one thing we really need is for as many people to wake up to the situation at hand and communicating the reality in all of its daunting scale is an important way to wake some people up but you don't want to lose them immediately with how intimidating this challenge is. So you, you need to, um, as a communicator, find ways to both explain how important and urgent the challenge is and also frame it as this opportunity. And for me personally, the business opportunity is the way that I get most excited. If you think about um, the competitive landscape of business, um, let's let's use a, a sailing analogy. You know, we're trying to get from A to B and and get there faster than a, than our peers in business. Climate change is like a predictable shift in the wind that some people can see and tack accordingly. You know, I think of it as the biggest and most pervasive change to that competitive landscape across every industry, every company, every geography. And I, I, I hope and I, I expect and really sincerely want to see Salesforce there as a trusted advisor to companies everywhere, trying to help them navigate these changing times with our technology. Well, I want to jump in and say I agree with Ian that this is the best time to be alive, and I'm a long-term optimist as well. I, I'm afraid as a journalist, I can't help but being a, a realist at the same time and, and sometimes a short-term pessimist. And uh, maybe to, to build on Patrick's sailing analogy, I, I like that metaphor, but I, I guess I would add that um, climate change is also a storm <laughs> and it's a, it's it's a, and it's a series of storms that are going to arrive somewhat unpredictably we're going to have to be ready to weather those storms and um, the optimistic way of framing that is that sometimes you know you can rely on history uh, or or weather to kind of wake people up it's true that we don't have enough people lined up and ready to go uh, understanding the science um, and the 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 policy imperatives here uh, that we need to act very quickly to turn this climate change problem around. But 
it'll get harder and harder to stay in the dark and to stay in denial as events unfold. I mean, we know that there is going to be worse weather, more extreme weather events, rising seas, um, worse fires, droughts, all sorts of sort of uh, plagues as well, right? Um, pandemics, uh, it gets harder to control disease as the temperatures rise. These kinds of things are going to get more common and it's going to get a lot harder to keep your head in the sand. And in a way, I mean, I've been studying disasters uh, for 30 years and, and I think they have, if they have a silver lining, it's that they teach us that disasters do happen and that we need to be more prepared for the next one. So from that perspective, I think, yeah, we're getting better and better at this. Sometimes it's bumpy, <laughs> but, but, <laughs> but, but we're getting better. Well, and and like you look at something like, you know, lead certification, which we can talk about, um, but these sort of newer things that like this is, if you look at the generation before us, you know, didn't have these type of things that to be able to to look at and to figure out rules and regulations and ways, that, uh, you know, patterns to behave and to pattern match things like that and to figure out best practices and to be able to, you know, even if your head was above the sand, like how could you really make a difference? You know, we, on a, on a, one of our podcasts, Future Cities, um, I talked to a uh, guy, Marty Koistra, who used to run Habitat for Humanity, uh, one of the parts of Habitat. And not to pick on them because they're a great organization. But the thing that was really interesting in that conversation was him talking about how Habitat was supposed to be a wake-up call for the people doing it, that this was a massive problem, not to solve the problem. Because he was like, you know, we, I don't know the exact numbers off the top of my head, but it's like, you know, we can build, you know, a hundred thousand, you know, homes a year. And yet the global need for housing is, you know, a, a, or a, a month or whatever. And the global need is a million a month or something like that. So it's like those type of problems where it's like trying to figure out and say, Hey, well, we'll just build more houses or we'll just like make sure that, that we're just going to try to take care of this the old way is not acceptable because what somebody does in Cambodia affects what happens in Oakland, California. What we do in Oakland, California affects what's going on in Norway. Like the, we are all truly interconnected now. And those two groups of people, A, might never meet and B, don't know the other person exists and C, don't know what that person is going through, right? Like if you have the opportunity to cut down a section of trees to feed your family so that you can, you know, create a, a farm, you're going to do what's best to feed your family, right? Like that's just how that's going to work. And so, but those, those things have massive implications for the, for the grander scheme of the world. Yeah, that's right. And it's uh, part aligning financial incentives, part getting the right information to those stakeholders we know that nature, natural ecosystems and tree planting and tree conservation will play a critical role in addressing climate change. And it's the, it's the responsibility of, of those who can step in and provide the financial support short-term for, for initiatives that make long-term financial success happen, um, step in with the right information and incentives to show the way forward. And that's exactly what the whole carbon offset culture is about, right? I know that Salesforce is active in trying to offset its carbon footprint, reducing that footprint to ultimately to zero 
by 2050, but also offsetting it in the meantime. And uh, carbon offsets and carbon certificates were invented to, to address that exact problem. Uh, maybe you can incentivize the farmer in Brazil not to cut down that patch of trees by propping them up financially or giving or helping them uh, discover um, a new livelihood, right? So you're right. Um, we do have mechanisms. Um, we know how to do some of this stuff. It's just, are you know, are we going to be consistent about applying them? And can we figure out ways to scale up those programs so that they can benefit even more people? That's right. And, and sooner rather than later, right? So we need simple frameworks um, to allow for other companies to also step in and make their products carbon neutral like Salesforce has done with the comfort to know that the impact is real and it's providing relief to the planet today and changing people's lives today. And there's an interesting pushback that we sometimes face and I sometimes hear. We are in no way saying that this is the end of the journey, right? (laughs) The carbon offsets or even a focus on nature-based solutions, it's one piece. And it's a piece we happen to be able to do really credibly, really well today, and also do the things that take longer, longer term to play out as well. So looking at disasters specifically, and I know, you know, Wade, you mentioned that you've been You've been working on um, disasters for the better part of your career. One of the things, and obviously we're we're in a we're in a crisis right now. One of the things that I think is so fascinating is you see immediately the seams of all of the things that you put in place when times were good. When you have you know disasters, my I don't know if you know this, but so my sister is the uh, executive director of the Earthquake Engineering Research Institute. So uh, and uh, and her husband's also also an engineer. So I've I've truly grown up around you know disaster response and figuring out how to and like learning from them. So what's funny is. You know, my sister's the one who who puts uh, you know rubber bands over all the cabinets in the kitchen because we she knows that an earthquake is coming because we live pretty much on the San Andreas Fault here in Oakland. But like the vast majority of people aren't like that. But it takes the people that are like that, that are wired like that, and the organizations that are preparing for the future to lead everyone else. And I think that it's such a clear leadership issue. Obviously, we've seen, you know, Mark Benioff and Salesforce spearheading a bunch of things. But from a disaster perspective, it seems like humanity is very uninterested in disasters the vast majority of the time. And it takes leadership to be able to figure that stuff out. How do we mitigate the risk on these type of disasters? Well, I, I think people are uninterested in disaster until it actually happens to them, right? Until they're until they're caught up in a real disaster. And we're going through one right now, which we can maybe talk about some more. But yeah, I mean, um, I've been thinking about and studying specifically technological disasters breakdowns in in human-made systems. That was the topic of my uh, history of technology PhD dissertation back in the early 90s. And I I looked at things like the nuclear disasters at Three Mile Island in Chernobyl, the chemical plant disaster in Bhopal, India in 1983, the giant blackouts that affected the Northeast in the US here in the 60s and 70s. Those kinds of disasters have an interesting effect, which is they provoke massive media coverage. And because they affect so many people, the folks who are on the receiving end of those events basically 
wake up overnight, have no choice but to, you know, figure out what they need to do to protect themselves and learn a lot about those systems and how they work. And that is, to me, the silver lining effect in in any disaster, whether it's a natural disaster or a, a human-made disaster or technological disaster. And I think we're seeing that play out right now. We should know how to deal with a pandemic. We've been through enough of them, um, but we're relearning some of the principles of uh, pandemic response and pandemic preparedness. And we're absolutely seeing the importance of leadership and the effects of a lack of leadership. So we can we can talk a lot about um, the principles that we kind of know but have been um, putting off to the side or ignoring or downplaying about how important it is to have preparedness plans for things. Whether we're talking about earthquakes or pandemics, there are, there are certain um, principles that we know work, like having a robust, resilient uh, supply of emergency equipment, um, whether it's for you know responding to fires or building collapses or medical disasters, or whether it's just having a you know a sufficient backup supply of uh, personal protective equipment um, and ventilators. Like it's not that hard <laughs> to build a stockpile of this stuff, but we seem to consistently prefer as a society to have almost no slack in our systems, and that kind of brittleness really comes back to bite us in events like this. Well, and to add to that, there was something crazy is that. What is the thing that like people are flocking to right and left right now is Zoom, which is a and you know and other tools like that, Google Hangouts and whatnot, which they're these communication tools which are built by private enterprise that work much better than anything that's out there too. So like you have this like rise of all these people trying to figure out technology on the fly, which is like in the military, you know, where I spent my formative years, it's like, that's called a pace plan, right? Like you have your primary alternate contingency and emergency communication plan. Like we don't have a pace plan, right? Like we just assume that things are going to be fine. We assume that, you know, internet is going to be fine. We assume that, um, you know, there's a lot of assumptions that go into that. And, you know, could we have figured it out? Yeah, for sure. But the other side of this is like when it comes to physical goods and services, like you can't replicate that. We can't, you know, work around that. You can't, um, you know, arguably you could work around not having any toilet paper because you can figure it out, but you can't work around not having any food or not having, you know, people prepared for that. You can't work around ventilator masks. You can't work around not having soap. I mean, what Semmelweis was writing about, well, why we needed soap, uh, you know, 150 years ago or whatever. Like it's not the fact that we are, are short on things like soap and hand sanitizer is wild. I mean, it should never in a million years come to that. And yet here we are. Here we are. It's this asymmetric risk moment as well, right? Uh, the, or asymmetric cost benefit of stockpiling a little bit of extra. It doesn't actually cost you all that much in normal times. And its value in changing times um, far outstrips it. So it's, it's the, uh, the rational thing to do. It's just overlooked. And so I, you know, our audience is primarily technology leaders. And we talked about, you know, over the course of this kind of sustainability series, that there is ways to engage. There's initiatives like uh, the One Trillion Trees Initiative and different sort of things where you can get your organization involved and actually make a difference. We're seeing, I mean, I think we've had uh, between a few of the podcasts that we create organizations that have 100% pivoted their 
business model to supporting creating masks and ventilators and things like that, we see, you know, private enterprise responding in a way that is honestly extremely refreshing and 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 cool to see. You know, it's not quite it's not quite, you know, Ford making uh fighter jets and planes in World War II levels yet, but um, but we are seeing that response. Wait, what are the parallels here, like historical parallels for this? And like, what do you think that people, how can they do more? How can they involve their organizations to make a difference? Because I think a lot of people just feel a little flat-footed. Well, wow, that's a huge question. If I were to try to answer it, I would say that even in the absence of strong, immediate leadership, people generally figure out how to cope. I mean, whether we're talking about like in the first hours and days after a disaster, like the 1906 fire and earthquake in San Francisco, for example, uh, you know, there, there wasn't a strong federal government in 1906. Um, we hadn't been through the crises of the 20th century yet, um, but people in San Francisco got it together to, you know, protect each other, to put out the fires, to build encampments, to make sure that there was enough food to go around, um, that th there were like soup kitchens that basically sprang up overnight to make sure that everyone had something to eat in the wake of that disaster. And Rebecca Solnit's book about this is kind of amazing. It's called A Paradise Built in Hell. And it's a really interesting look at how people show their resiliency and their goodwill and their humanity, really, in, in perhaps more after a disaster than in any other situation, which is awesome. It gets harder to to solve problems of a, you know, when you kind of zoom out a little bit and, and look at the systematic challenges that disasters highlight. So you can't solve every problem with the soup kitchen. Some things do require federal leadership. I, I agree, Ian, it's kind of amazing what's happening at the uh, enterprise level right now in areas like uh, folks improvising 3D printed face masks uh, or figuring out new ways to, to engineer ventilators. A lot of that is happening from the ground up in a very sort of crowdsourced way without a ton of leadership or support at the government level. And it's amazing. And I think, you know, you would have seen that kind of ground, ground up leadership or effort even in World War One or World War II had there not been a strong federal response. But that only goes so far. And I think at some point you've got to have a top down leadership as well to make sure that those folks are finding out about each other, to make sure that there are supply chains to support them, to make sure that there's a way to get the stuff they're building to the people who need it. Th those kinds of much grander, broader problems can only be solved on a systematic basis. And you know, without getting too political about it, I think there there have been there's been an argument going on for a long time that government is basically um, inept and that we can't trust it to do anything. And as a result, we have lost trust in government. <laughs> it's a clear one-to-one -one relationship here. So faith in government is at a low level. And uh, I think we're about to rediscover what we can do if we, if we all start rowing in the same direction. We're going to rediscover our competence as individuals and as a society. Um, and we really have no choice. I mean, we're facing a moment where we either are going to resign ourselves to just ongoing economic catastrophe, or we're going to get our act together and figure out how to manage our way through a pandemic together. And it's going to take leadership. And I'm hoping that uh, folks will wake up at all levels.
Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. You on the topic of competence and especially core competency. Maybe I'll draw a link from from the COVID nineteen response and Salesforce over to to climate action again. You know, in a in a in a highly acute crisis, you know, the the rational the right thing to do is whatever you can to help. Right, like um, Salesforce focusing on its employees and. Um, the the service providers directly around us. And then you enter a next phase where it's the right thing to do is really to think about what you do best. You know, in, in this case, it's re-engaging with our customers in this time and helping them and understanding their pain points however we can. You know, if I pivot that over to the climate crisis, there's a lesson there as well in terms of everybody should be hopefully ready to do what they can at the individual level, changing lifestyle, changing behavior. But what we really need is every individual, every company, every organization reflecting on what they do best and bringing that to bear for this epic adventure ahead. Um, Whether that is thinking about food production or technology in the hands of, of customers or thinking about transformation of the transportation sector, um, thinking about superpowers and leveraging those to have the, the best possible benefit. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think that, you know, when you look at a company like, like a Salesforce that creates a technology that in and of itself, you know, is not going to put you know, scrap of food on somebody's plate, right? Like that's, and that's kind of the misconception is like, well, how can a technology company make, have such a huge impact? And it's like, because the network and the customers and all the people that you have is super critical. But the other piece is like the interconnected levels of technologies. That's like a drone company in and of itself can't stop forest fires. But the way that drones can find and track forest fires and share that data with, you know, governmental organizations and vice versa can have, you know, a huge impact. And then you take kind of the the next level of that, you know, we we interviewed someone from the city of Detroit that they leveraged, you know, drone technology to essentially inspect they had I think it was like 6,000 homes uh that had been you know, abandoned. And they didn't know if people were living there. They didn't know like the state of like, you know, what people were, were going through. And this was just, you know, regular Detroit. This was not, you know, a particular environmental crisis or anything like that. And so they leveraged drones to like go in and explore those homes in a way that they, you know, do going door to door, they couldn't have done. And so you look at the interconnected levels of technologies and how, how you can really have a difference and it has huge effects like those the the combinations of like physical and digital uh, technologies going forward is going to have a huge force multiplier as as we call it in the military like those sort of things can have a massive impact um, as they all get interconnected but if we rely on you know each company just doing you know a singular thing and not you're not hooking in with what other folks are doing you know you might not you might not have that same sort of you know, network effects. And then one other thing, you mentioned the 1906 earthquake, there is a butterfly effect to these sort of things. Because when that fire hit in 1906, a man by the name of Ivor Iverson took his uh, young wife fled San Francisco and settled down in Oakland, California. And, uh, you know, 
a hundred years later, his uh, his great grandson is is hosting a podcast talking about that earthquake. So, um, you know, there there is there is that level of optimism that as things like that happen and as crises like that happen, the world will continue to evolve and go on, and uh, and we can have a have an impact beyond what's just happening in that moment. Yeah, well, you know, it, it brings back to mind the the concept that both of you raised about, you know, a crisis really changes you and wakes you up if it affects you. And there is something, you know, there's there's nothing but tragedy in the COVID-19 pandemic, but if I trace it to some some hopeful elements, especially as we get into the recovery phase is whether it whether it has affected you personally in terms of the the loss of a friend or a loved one, it has affected you in terms of how this is a completely global change in the way we are working, the the way we are all understanding how resilient we are and how quickly we can get used to a new normal and how we are how important it is to look at the science. And I think this is the the biggest silver lining to me. Um, coming out of it for climate, we are all getting a crash course in looking at the data and trying to peer weeks into the future and act today as as we would want to if we were standing in that future state and had a time machine to go backwards. And that's exactly what one does in the field of sustainability if when looking at the climate crisis thinking about the bold action that's needed today that makes perfect sense if you're standing in 2050 and looking back on what you wish you had done in 2020. So I'm really hopeful that this is a global crash course in thinking about interconnected systems and using science to look into the future and act today based on that picture of the future that you see. Yeah. And if I could add one thing to that, I completely agree with your point about the importance of science and how this is a learning, a teachable moment around um, the science of pandemics. And if we can get a little better at just paying attention to science in general, that'll help us with climate change. But there's something else going on here too, which I think is we're getting a a live demonstration of uh, how, in fact, it is not impossible to make very big, very bold, very momentous changes almost overnight. I mean, in order to stop the spread of this pandemic, we have voluntarily, globally, basically turned off the whole economy or 90% of it, right? That's the kind of shift that everyone would have said was impossible right up until the moment we had to do it. And now that we know we can do it, I mean, it's probably unsustainably expensive because we're going to have to wind up, you know, financing this somehow <laughs> through through government debt. But so it's not the kind of thing we can afford to do every month or every year or even every decade. But it is a, a demonstration, I think, that say you decided that you wanted to cut carbon emissions 15 or 20 or 50 percent like in a year. <laughs> well, all you have to do is stop driving and stop flying. Right. So the skies are clear over Los Angeles um, mm-hmm. and Beijing. So we can do this. Right. And and I hope people remember a little bit of that once once the recovery begins and we get back to normal. Yeah. You know, and a couple things from that, you know, we're, we're seeing some storylines of the the, the benefits to air quality and pollution from this overall economic slowdown. And, you know, that's 
true. And also it's a, it's a key demo. It's a clear demonstration of those um, rifts that you were talking about earlier, Ian, you know, the fact that a, a healthy environment and a healthy economy are at odds with one another is in our current system is front and center for us right now. You know, we're, we're still going in the wrong direction. Day by day, we're still putting more pollutants into the atmosphere. We still need to turn this car around. We're just driving maybe a little slower right now, but it's easier to turn the car around when you're driving more slowly. So well, the- and, and Yeah. So, and that's where incrementalism can't be the answer. And that's like part of the thing with this, which is- if anything else, this pandemic showed me that I wish I traveled more, that I wish I saw more of the world, that I wish I could meet more people, more humans, more, have more interactions. So I think that we need to figure out solutions that allow people to travel more, to spend more time in non-digital experiences, to do things um, and to connect the world physically in more ways than ever before. And you can't do that with incrementalism. You have to you have to follow the behavior that like humans are going to want to see each other more than ever. They're going to want to be out in the world more than ever after something like this, you know, travel and all those sort of things should be the new normal. So we need to figure out exponential technologies that can do those sort of things. And like, you know, I think that, you know, to put a point on, um, you know, what you were saying, Wade is like, people just don't realize that historically, the levels that which things happened in the past. It was like, we built the Golden Gate Bridge during the depression. Like we built the Empire State Building under budget and early. Like, like these sort of things like that were happening in the past that happened. Like we were doing things as a society, you know, a hundred years ago that we can't do right now, which is crazy. So I think that there's just a little bit of like dreaming and optimism and like everybody just kind of saying collectively, well, like that's not possible or we can't do that or, you know, you can't deliver something like that. And the fact of the matter is like, you know, I don't know, maybe nobody knew any better back then, but, uh, but it sure is a different mindset to think about those things and to think about creating things that have a massive impact on, on society. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Ian, I think travel is a great example. Of course, we'd love people to uh, become more interconnected and get to know people in other countries better, but we can't do that at the expense of just putting everyone right back on a a jet-fueled airplane, right? Transportation is one of the biggest contributors to carbon emissions and global warming. And the only way to have a sustainable travel industry is sooner or later to switch over to um, electric planes, right? So this is something I've covered a little bit. It would not be that hard to create a crash program to invest in, sorry, it would not be that hard to create a crash program to invest in electric powered planes. We know how to build jet engines. We know how to build electric powered jet engines. The question is, can we do that and also figure out um, how to create batteries that have enough energy density that you can carry around the batteries you need on the same plane, right? So these are like interconnected problems. They're not unsolvable. It might take a Manhattan Project type investment to make it happen in a short time scale, but those things are not out of reach. And it's, you know, it's, it's that we've kind of lost the uh, flexibility, the, maybe the muscle memory around doing these kinds of things, uh, but they're not out of reach. Well, and look at 
what Tesla did with the car. I mean, like nobody thought that that was possible, right? Like nobody, I mean, and you know, you can feel whatever way you feel about Tesla, but like nobody believed that, that that exact type of thing could happen. That, that you could build a company like that in that way that created a vehicle like Tesla. Like nobody thought that that was possible. And yet here we are, right? And like not in that amount of, like in a sh- relatively short amount of time. I mean, it's really remarkable. Completely remarkable. Nothing but awe for Tesla, right? And the, you know, the, the safest, fastest, higher customers, highest customer satisfaction and most environmentally, most reliable um, cars. Uh, incredible. But, you know, on the, on the topic of transportation and travel, I do think connecting digitally and our familiarity with doing that and our understanding of just how productive we can be without physically traveling to be face-to-face with somebody, it is, it is something we are learning through this process. And as much as I agree that we will see some rebounds from this into the recovery and maybe an appreciation for travel when we do get to do it, I think the, we will also see a more pragmatic view of the need for travel, um, it, certainly in the business context. And, and whether it's really vitally necessary to be face-to-face for a meeting for a day just to hop back on a plane and head back to where you, where you live. Yeah, I totally agree. But I would also add that if we push our thinking and say, I would rather people travel 10 times more than they do now or 100 times more than they do now globally and try to figure out what is the solution to that problem, right? And it's like maybe the planes move you know, half as fast and they're smaller or, you know, whatever it is, but it's like thinking of those problems and and expanding the that exponential conundrum is like I would love for people to be able to do more and really shape behavior in that way. Um, and like you said, you know, prune our, our, you know, what is the expectation of, of, you know, different sorts of, of like, what does, you know, an in-person meeting mean or those sort of things, which is really exciting from a business perspective. But I think, again, it can't be an incremental solution. Um, right. It has to be an exponent, exponential solution. Like we can't, we can't think in terms of like getting things better by plus one, like we need to, it needs to be plus 1000. Right. The, the, uh, you know, if you, if you, if you're stuck on a problem, make it bigger adage, right? Yeah, yeah, Um, exactly. You know, sometimes you got to sort of aim bigger to have the the breakthrough that you need. I'm totally with you guys. Yeah. Um, I have a column in scientific American and the most recent issue, the column I wrote for the most recent issue was about what's called tough tech or sometimes deep tech. Um, it's this whole notion that there are certain technologies that are kind of radioactive to the investment world because they're just seen as too incremental, too challenging, too expensive. Like, I mean, fusion, right? Fusion energy would be the classic example of a problem that uh, if you were a venture capitalist, <laughs> the, the fastest way to like shovel your fortune down, down the drain would be to invest in fusion seemingly, right? But there are actually uh, venture firms, um, including one right here in Cambridge called The Engine, that are investing in these sort of moonshot enterprises, including a startup called Commonwealth Fusion that's working on magnets for smaller fusion reactors. And and that's the kind of long shot investment uh, for a huge payoff that's not incremental that I wish we could see more of. Um, Unfortunately, I don't think that there are all all that many uh, firms out there investing with that kind of vision and daring. 
Um, but uh, there are a few, and this field of tough tech is is one that um, I think investors are interested in. I hope they don't feel too burned. Um, I hope they don't feel too depleted after this the current uh, crisis um, to continue with that kind of um, daring investment. But you know, there are there are investors pointing the way. Well, that's a great great piece to end on here um, because I think uh, I'm excited to see what's next for technology and what people are building to try to solve some of these massive problems. Gents, any any final thoughts? Um, thanks so much for joining the show. We really appreciate it. No, it was a wonderful discussion. Really, really fun to hang out with you guys. Yeah, the feelings mutual. Thanks, Wade. Thanks, Ian. Great to be with you both. Yeah, talk soon. IT Visionaries is brought to you by the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Take climate action with a pre-built carbon accounting solution and gain insights into your greenhouse gas emissions. Learn more at salesforce.com slash solutions slash sustainability.